How do you respond? When there's a conflict, what's your first reaction? Not just in your head, because oftentimes our reaction is more in our stomach, isn't it? When we sense that, oh, shoot, they're not happy with me. There's a problem. There's actually a chart I want to show you. Um, this isn't original with me, of just the different ways people tend to react when they are in conflict. Um, the lower left, and you can see the priorities are relationships up and down on the left. The bottom is how important your purpose and goals are. And our reactions sort of get categorized into this. Um, the turtle is the first reaction, and that is because my behavior is exactly like a turtle. Conflict terrifies me, and so if I sense there's any kind of conflict, I just sort of pull inside my shell, and I withdraw. I just can't handle it. Um, if your priority is heavily towards relationships, you tend to respond as the teddy bear. Whatever you want. I'll just, whatever you want. I just want everybody to love me. The opposite of that is, of course, the shark. I have my goals, and I'm going to accomplish my goals. And if I need to walk over you to get there, that goal, sorry, get out of the way. It may hurt, but my goals are important. The uh, fox is in the middle who's willing to negotiate and have a little bit of each and give up a little bit of each. And the owl is that one who hangs out till the very end saying, there has to be a way we can solve this that will work for everyone. Well, those are just some ways, and probably it doesn't take very long for you to sit there and think, yeah, I'm probably this. The reason I bring that up is because the church in Corinth was in conflict. Um, we're going to read about it, but there was a conflict going, in a sense, on multiple levels within the church in Corinth. We already saw in the beginning that there were different groups within the church following different leaders, and there was some real disagreement between those different factions, we would call them, in the church, in the congregation. But now in chapter 6, we learn that there were also conflicts going on personally within the congregation. In fact, it was so bad that they were actually taking each other to public court, member against member within the congregation. So you see that Conflict was happening at multiple levels within the congregation. And honestly, Paul was shocked. And we're going to read some pretty harsh words that he speaks to them today. But before we read that, I wanted to notice something, not about the church in Corinth, but about the church in the United States today. About this church and most churches today. And that is, on the one hand, the reality is that conflict happens. It just is a part of life in a broken world, and we all are imperfect people. And the combination of a broken world and imperfect people is that conflict is going to happen. Anytime a bunch of people work together, if they play ball on the same team, you name it, conflict is going to happen. It is a part of life together. And Paul's criticism of the church in Corinth is not that you're having conflict. Paul knew that is a part of life together. His criticism of them was how they were handling the conflict or how they were mishandling the conflict. 
But I want us to recognize something that I think is pretty common among Christians. And that is what I would call an unrealistic expectation. I think a lot of us as Christians feel like there should not be conflict between us. There should not be conflict in the church. And our reasoning goes like this. Well, we all love Jesus, and we all love God, and we're all supposed to turn the other cheek. And so if you apply all that together, the outcome is there should be no conflict. And of course, then, if we start to believe that, then anytime conflict happens, we, our first reaction is there's something wrong with us. This is somehow a failure on our part as Christians. And unfortunately, we don't know what to do about it. In fact, often as Christians, the very presence of conflict makes us so uncomfortable, our first reaction is to deny it. This can't really be happening. It's not happening. I won't believe it's happening. Or we try and avoid it. And our number one solution is do nothing and say nothing and somehow it'll go away. Just pretend like it's not there. But the reality is because we're ashamed of conflict and we don't know how to handle conflict and we often don't handle it in healthy ways, it gets worse. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we look at a solution Jesus gave us in how he says we should handle conflict. But first I want us to go over to the Corinthians and in the first few verses Paul talks about in a sense their wrong approach how they were handling it and how it was wrong. Um, we're going to stay in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians the whole time today. I want to start with the first six verses. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church, the pagans? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Now, first of all, you want to catch something, and if you're, um, you're not uh, familiar with Revelation, one of the pictures that we have of the end when Christ returns is that we will sit on thrones and we will be with Christ in judging humanity. That's what he's referring to here. And with a little sarcasm, Paul is saying, if we are qualified to join Christ in judging humanity, how in the world can't we handle a dispute in the church between a couple people? And his criticism of them is that they're not doing that, they're not handling it, and in fact, the church members are taking each other to an unbeliever's court. And that was where he was calling them to task. Paul's assumption, which is one that we need to hear, is that the church should be our first resource when conflict happens. 
it should be the first place we turn to look for help in those around us, the people who know us, the people who care about us, the people who share our value system, the people who understand God's priorities. Who better to go to and talk to about a disagreement, about a conflict, than that group around us that we can turn to and rely upon? The people who would best be able to answer that old question, what would Jesus do? And Paul says, isn't that who we should be going to? But we often don't do that, do we? In fact, it seems like we have the opposite reaction. Maybe it is out of shame or pride, but when conflicts happen, the last thing we want to do is have the church find out about it. We want to keep that private, or we'd rather go to a secular court system and hopefully nobody's going to read the news and see me on the docket of court. Paul challenges that. Paul challenges it and said, we need to trust each other and go to each other. Because the only person that wins if we just rely on ourselves is Satan. As damage happens not only between two people, but as that damage spreads further in the church through the conflict. So how should we respond in conflict? The Corinthians were not doing it correctly. How should we respond when there's conflict between Christians? We disagree with something. Something has happened and someone has offended the other. Well, I think the best way to look at that is how Jesus teaches us to respond. And over in Matthew 18, he actually lays out a pretty clear process. It has four steps that we're to follow when we're engaged, when a conflict occurs between Christians uh, with each other. Let me read it, and then we'll go back and look at the four steps. So Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, to the fellowship. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That's a pretty clear process Jesus lays out for us, saying here's what you should do, here's how to handle it when you have a disagreement with a brother or sister in the church. So let's go back and look at the four steps Jesus gives us. The, the first step is that we are to go and talk to them directly. Doesn't say, he says, doesn't say talk to anybody else, and he doesn't say don't do anything and just wish it goes away. He says if there is a problem, we need to go directly and talk to each other about it. I want to show you one other thing about a chart from the process of how conflict works. This is called the conflict cycle. Again, it's not original with me. And because this isn't really a class in conflict, I have deleted the words beside each of those steps. Because today, I just want you to see that conflict has a definite process. And psychologists and sociologists have analyzed it. Business management people have analyzed it. And there is a definite progression of conflict. 
And if it's not addressed, if we don't go talk to people, it will progress. And the further you go around the circle, the worse the conflict becomes. The stronger it is, the more that are involved, other people get involved, and it's harder to resolve. One of the things they've learned about conflict is that stage one or stage two is the easiest way to resolve a conflict. And the best way to do that is you go to the person directly and you talk with them. Exactly what Jesus suggests as step one. And if we don't resolve the conflict, then it grows worse. And finally, at stage five, at that point, there's three options. You've gone through these stages of the conflict. It has gotten worse and worse. By this time, it's open conflict. Things have happened in the public eye. And at that point, three options. One, you go to the far left and the relationship is severed. We are no longer have a relationship because of the conflict. The one option, and I drew a cloud to make it look, is the conflict is resolved. We have dealt with it, we've worked through the issues, and we have resolved the conflict and restored the relationship. The third option, and this is what happens too often, is if we have not resolved it by then, we go around the cycle again. And each time we go around that cycle, the same steps happen, and they get stronger and worse. And so, isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, there's a way to handle conflict, and the first thing you need to do is you need to go directly and talk to the person. Now, I've never found anybody who likes doing that. I certainly do not. In fact, if I need to do that, I'll probably get upset stomach, I'll get anxious, a knot in my back, all those kinds of emotional responses. But there's a lot of things Jesus asks us to do that aren't easy and fun. They're just right. They're best. And even secular sociologists and business managers would say, the best approach is go directly and talk to them. Now, that doesn't always work, and that brings us to step two. Uh, in step two, we involve a few others. Not a lot, a few Jesus says, get one or two others and bring them along with you. Because the first discussion didn't accomplish anything when it was just the two of us. Notice that Jesus still says, keep this issue confidential, just one or two others. Not everybody. We're not dragging everybody into that. It helps us deal with it quickly. But part of the goal is that if I have a couple others with me, it does send a message that this is serious. We need to deal with this. And it also, if I have two or three others with me, it removes the issue of this is just a difference of opinion. Because now there's two or three others saying, no, I, I, this really is an issue. We really do need to deal with this. The other thing it does, if I'm upset with you and I think, boy, if I can't find anybody else to go with me, it really is a good check and balance. Because if everybody else is saying, Jim, I think you're a little crazy. I don't see there's an issue here. And that's what everybody's telling me. Then it really makes me reevaluate my perspective. And maybe the challenge is mine, not you. But then if we can sit down and I've got a couple others there and we're all from the fellowship, we care about each other. 
This isn't about judgment. This isn't about condemnation. This is about working through this and talking about it and finding solutions and understanding each other. And sometimes it is this second step that we need. We need some other voices in the room, other ears in the room to say, wait a minute, I, I don't think you're hearing each other. And this can be one of the best, most successful steps when we get to step two. Unfortunately, that doesn't always work. And Jesus lays out for us step three. And that is where we need to involve the larger fellowship, others in the church. But again, this isn't about judgment. This is about resolution. And what Jesus is calling us to do is gather the help of the other Christians in this fellowship who care for each other to try and help bring this to some sense of working this out, understanding each other, finding solutions. And then Jesus lays out step four, where he says, finally, if none of that has worked, the final step is to treat them as you would an unbeliever, a pagan. Now, again, your first reaction might be that you would say, well, then we're judging them, we're condemning them. But think about that for a second. What are we asked to do for unbelievers? We are asked to teach them about Jesus, to love them, to help them, to help them meet Jesus, to help them truly turn their life over to Jesus, to submit their life to God's direction and God's wisdom. Again, it's still a goal from Jesus of restoring the person and helping the person. But if steps one, two, and three didn't work, then maybe we have to go to a more basic issue of are we really surrendered to God and letting him run our lives? Are we humbled enough before Jesus that we're willing to listen when we've done wrong and the rest of the fellowship is telling us that? It is the most basic issue of submission to Christ that we need to look at, which is the issue for an unbeliever. It's a process that Jesus gives us that is, offers us that simple way to handle conflict in the church, not what the Corinthians were doing. Now, I want us to go back and look at a little bit more in chapter 6 because there was wrong happening in the Corinthian church. And Paul talks about that in verses 7 and 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So I want you to notice that Paul recognizes there were wrong things going on in the church between brothers and sisters in the church. But, but his concern was how they were responding and how they were handling this, and that they were taking their issues out into the public courts, and it was, of course, bringing disrepute upon all of them as Christians in the city of Corinth. Paul wanted them to understand that that was what was not right. That they as Christians were cheating and hurting each other. And he goes on and talks about that. The fact that what we do as Christians and how we treat each other is very important. It's not just about faith and grace and then we do whatever we want. 
Paul challenges them on this. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, let's keep reading with verses 9 and through 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, what we do, even if we're believers, still matters. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, notice what Paul says there. If we start at the end of that, he says, you're Christians. You have been washed. You have given your life to Christ. You have been forgiven. And if that is true, then that should change how you live. That it's not okay to now, I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I want. Paul says, that is not how it works. We have committed our life to Christ, to follow Christ. We have been forgiven. He says, you were all these kinds of sinners, but you've been washed. Now act like it. You can't say it doesn't matter how I treat anybody else in the church because I've been forgiven. He says, no, it does matter. And God is still going to look, even though we have been forgiven by grace, He is still going to look at how we have treated each other and whether our behavior shows that our faith is sincere. James probably does the best job of any of the books in the New Testament of challenging us on this point. Because a lot of people say they have faith, but genuine faith is going to be shown by how we actually live which is the exact point Paul is trying to make. You can't have been washed and have left that old life of sin and then turn right around and go back and live that way again. Our claims and our actions need to line up. Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I think a lot of times as Christians, we struggle to put these two together. In the sense of, wait a minute, aren't we saved by grace? Yes. And haven't we admitted that our works can't save us? Yes, that's true. But that doesn't lead to the conclusion that what we do is irrelevant. What Jesus himself says and what James says and what Paul is calling the Corinthian church to see is that if our faith is genuine and we are seeking to follow Jesus, then that will show up in our behaviors. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? No, not at all. We can't. We never will be. But at the same time, it is obvious when we're at a point where we are trying to follow God's will. We're trying to do things Jesus' way. And if someone shows us where we're not doing something Jesus' way, we're the first ones to be humble and say, I, I've blown it. I'm sorry. I see now Jesus doesn't want me to act this way. I'm going to work to change that. 
that's what Paul calls that church to do. I think he calls us to do that as well. So how are you handling conflict in your life? I didn't say if you have conflict. Because I know we all do. Sooner or later, there's conflicts that arise. And it doesn't mean we have failed as a Christian or that we are not trying to live in God's love. It means we're broken and we live in a broken world. And conflict will happen. The challenge for us is to hear these admonitions from Christ, from Paul, in how we talk to each other and how we use the church to help us work through those conflicts. Because then that unity, which Paul will again and again talk to throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, that is so important, that is how we maintain that unity. Not because there never is conflict, but that we work through it in the way God would call us to do. Let's pray. Father, we wish things would just go smoothly all the time. It would be so much easier. But uh, that's just not how life is in this broken world and in our brokenness as imperfect people. And so we ask for your forgiveness when we've not always followed your directions. We ask for your help with our weaknesses when we don't want to do what's difficult or best. We ask for your help and guidance that we might see how Paul asks us to live, how Jesus asks us to live, and give us your strength and courage to take those steps even if they are difficult steps. Thank you for your love with us and that you persist in helping us when we struggle. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.